Uh, I was reminded <clears throat> of a story this week that I heard years ago uh, from a pastor, and I was trying to remember who it was. I actually went to look up the specifics of the story, and to be honest, I couldn't find where I had heard it. Uh, but as I thought about that, that's actually better for what I'm about to tell you, that, that I can't remember uh, exactly who it was that said it, and it's been a long time. But the point I want to make as I think about it is that I still remember a lot of it. And so uh, this story was simply of a, a man who had escaped a Nazi concentration camp, and he had gone on to live a full life, but he told this story of his life being spared while he was in this camp. And so the story went that he returned back to the camp one day, and there were a bunch of men that had been out working together uh, with tools and with their hands, and they had them lined up in a line. And one of the officers came and said to him, uh, to, to the men in the line, they said, uh, there's one of the tools is missing and we need to know who took it. And so the officer then went up and down the line and was yelling at him and I want to know who took it. And no one answered. And so he drew his gun and he went to the front of the line. and He said, I'm going to start to shoot each one in the line until someone confesses to what they did. And so he got to the end of the line and he drew his pistol and he put it to the man's head in the front of the line. And as he was about to pull the trigger, a guy about three fourths of the way stepped up and he said, I took it. And so he lowered his gun and he walked over and he told all of them that you couldn't steal from him or so on and so forth. And then he shot the man that confessed and he fell to the ground. And the story was told by the guy who was in the front of the line, the guy who originally had the gun to his head right before this guy confessed. Well, a few minutes later, one of the other officers would come up and say, hey, actually, nothing's missing. We just miscounted. No one stole anything. The guy who confessed actually didn't do anything wrong at all. But he decided to step forward and take the punishment so that the rest of the line of the men would not be shot. And so as the guy told the story, as he'd gone on in his life and he told the story, he said uh, uh, later on he was rescued and he got out of the concentration camp. And then he said, every day for the rest of my life, I would wake up and think, I owe that I have breath today to that guy that stepped forward and took it for me. That's a wonderful, beautiful illustration, a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. That we have breath, that we have life because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. And so I think that's why that illustration sticks so with me, even though it's been a long time since I heard it. And I, and I mentioned that this morning and I bring that up and I start with that, not just because of the powerful picture that it is of Jesus and how it points us to him, but also just the power of stories and of illustrations that I could hear that years and years ago and still know it so clearly in my mind and, and what it illustrates and what it tells us. And the reason I say that and the reason I bring that up is this morning, for the next six weeks, starting this morning, we're actually going to talk about the parables of Jesus. We're going to look at different parables that Jesus told. And parables were these short stories that often had a, a central metaphor that Jesus was making a point about a spiritual reality. And so we're going to look at some of those the next few weeks. And as we think about the parables, I was actually reading a book on uh, seeing the world through Middle Eastern eyes. I, was, I believe that's the name of it, by a man named Kenneth Bailey. And I was reading this this week. And he has, I was reading it because he has a whole section on the parables. And he's talking about what they mean and what they look like. And, and he made this observation. And this may seem really obvious at first, but he said, Jesus Christ is the greatest theologian that has ever lived. And I went, well, yeah, obviously. God coming down, God telling us what God is like. Yes, he's going to be the best at that. Right. When when Jesus speaks, we're hearing God, we're seeing God. He is the greatest theologian. But then he went on to say that Jesus was primarily a metaphorical theologian. That's all. I can think about that for a second. And I want you to think about what he was saying. Metaphorical 
theologian. See, when we get into theology, theology is the study of who God is. That's simply what it's a fancy way of saying, who is God? And so when we think about theology, oftentimes we get really heady and we get into it and we we think about these things and and we, we get deeper into it. And as we're thinking, we become more and more abstract. We become more and more analytical. A lot of theologians that way are hard to listen to sometimes. They can be very dry and hard to follow and very difficult. I'm very analytical in my thinking. I can fall into that. That resonates with me when I think about it. But what he said is that Jesus wasn't that way. That Jesus often spoke in very simple metaphors, using similes. He was, he was one that used dramatic action often to make his point. Uh, I was thinking probably the best example I could think of that just came to mind as I even say that, dramatic action. There's a story in the Gospels when they bring an adulterous woman to Jesus and throw him at his feet and say, she's been caught in the act and the law says we're supposed to stone her. What should we do, Jesus? And if you know that story, he just stands there. And he waits and he's kind of quiet. It says he goes over and he bends down and he starts to draw on the ground. We don't know actually what he drew or what it was. And then he stood up and he said, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. And that's it. And then slowly, one by one, people started to drop their stones. It says it started with the older and worked its way down to the younger, but they all dissipated. And the picture of what Jesus shows in that one dramatic action is that we are all sinners before God. Now, he could have gone into a very analytical sermon and explained that and how we're all sinners and what that looks like and gone through all that. But in one dramatic action, Jesus so clearly shows us that we're all sinners. And so you saw him do that often. And so when we look at these stories, as we start today, we're going to look at these very simple parables, but they have great and deep meaning behind them. And oftentimes we kind of kind of dismiss them as being really simple and, and, and they are in understanding, but what they point to are great and huge truths. And so one thing I do want to point out, though, as we look at the parables and as we think about them, yes, they're simple. Yes, they're straightforward. Yes, they're easy pictures to grasp a hold of and look at. But remember, Jesus being the perfect teacher, was speaking to people in a very specific culture in a very specific time. And so he uses things that they would know about. He would use things that would be very obvious to them that they would quickly understand and see. Now, the problem is we live 2,000 years later. We don't live in the Middle East. We don't see some of the pictures that Jesus points to. They're not as readily available to us. And so there is a little bit of work we have to do to think about what Jesus is teaching. And so that's the importance of, of carefully coming to God's word and considering the context. And it's, it's a good reminder of why we should study and think about what the Bible teaches us and what it looks like. And so I just say that as a reminder, because we're going to have to do a little bit of that work as we walk through these parables. Even though the picture, I think when we see the background and we see some of those things, the picture that is there uh, becomes very clear. And it is very simple what Jesus is teaching. And so we're going to look in Matthew chapter 13 to start this morning. That's on page 531 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us, it's there on 531. And what we're going to look at is Matthew chapter 13, verses 44, 45 and 46. Three verses. It's actually two parables, but we're going to take them together because Jesus himself links them together. He he actually puts the two together. And so that's why we're going to look at them together. But listen, as I read to you from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then he covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. 
who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and he bought it. So let's pray and then we're going to look at that together. Lord, we just pray that as we open your word, as we see what you're teaching us and what you're showing us, I pray that your spirit would move in this place and that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would impress upon us so clearly uh, how wonderful you are, what a priority you are in all things, that we would see that clearly through your teaching of your eternal word. I pray that you would uh, just encourage us this morning, but most of all, that we would leave here having seen you more clearly, having seen your glory, having made much of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So here's how I want to look at it. It's pretty straightforward. Hopefully it's very simple when we look at these pictures that Jesus points but it's a profound truth that he tells us. And so there's three things that I want us to see as we look at this parable together. And the first one I want you to see is in both of these parables, whether it's the man in the field or the man going after the pearls, is that in both stories, they're searching. And so my first point, the first thing I want us to consider is that everyone you know is searching. Every single person you come into contact with is searching. Then the second thing I want us to think about is what Jesus is talking about is what every single person you know is looking for. Everyone is searching, but what Jesus is talking about is what everyone is looking for. And then lastly, it should be the priority above all else. If it's what everyone's looking for and it's the answer to what we're looking for, it should be the priority above all else. And so let's just start at the beginning with this idea of everyone searching. But before we do, I want you just to think about what I just said about some of the cultural things that we need to think about in this story and understand to get the fullness of what Jesus is teaching. You know, when you read in verse 44 and Jesus begins with the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. And the, the, the connotation here is the guy is out in the field looking for treasure. And at first, when you read that, if you read that through 2014 eyes, you can go, this guy's a little bit crazy. Maybe this guy thinks he's a pirate. He's out digging for treasure and looking around out in the field. And you can read that and kind of go, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Either he was a little bit off, maybe he thought he was a pirate, or he's like an eight-year-old. That's something my kids would absolutely do, go and dig in the yard for treasure. That's just something we would do as a kid, right? And so the picture there, you can go, well, what's going on? Why is this guy out in the field digging for treasure? And so simply put, when we, when we read and we look at the culture and we know kind of what's going on, if you had valuables at the time, what did you do with them? Right? Did you go to the bank and get a safety deposit box and you lock it up? Or you go to the store and you buy a great big safe and have it put in in your basement so that you can protect? No, you went out into the field and your land and you buried it. You hid it. Because you weren't sure the best way to take care of it. So a lot of times that's what you would do. You would literally go and bury valuables that you wanted to make sure that you kept safe in a field. You'd go in your land and you'd bury it. Now, the problem is in Jesus's day, uh, in the drop of a hat, war could spring up. Uh, people could die very quickly. Healthcare's is a little different than it was uh, today than it was then. And so lots of different things could happen to where maybe you buried your treasure and then you had to leave in a hurry and you left it. Or you buried your treasure and then you passed away and nobody knew it was there. And so what happens is this is not an uncommon thing to think about a treasure being buried in a field. Just culturally speaking, it's a little removed from us because that's not what we would do today. That's not exactly how we would do it. But it makes sense when you see it culturally. 
The same could be uh, said about the, the merchant here in verse 45. It says, and the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Pearls in Jesus' day were of great value. There's some things uh, historically that we've seen that they put together uh, of how valuable they were. And we're talking about uh, close to uh, multiple millions of dollars they were worth in, in the t- money of the time. It was worth great, great value. And so he would go and he would look and he would knew what he was looking for. And if he came across a pearl of great value, he would want to snatch it up. And so it's kind of like um, if you've ever I don't know, this may be dated. I don't even know if it's still on TV, but there used to be a television show. Uh, I saw it years ago uh, called Antique Roadshow. Have you ever seen this? Uh, I don't know if it's still on TV or not, but um, if it is. But what they do is they go around to like flea markets and different stuff and people would bring their antiques. And they would have uh, experts there to tell them what they were worth. And so maybe somebody would bring in. Uh, I remember watching a show where a lady brought in a painting from her attic and she brought it to the guy. And it's like it was kind of cool looking and it's old. And I just wanted to know if it was worth anything. And well, the guy looks at it and he does some stuff. And he goes, yeah, actually, what you have here is an original Pablo Picasso that we didn't know existed anymore. And it's valued between one and three million dollars. Right. So she's thinking maybe I'll get five hundred dollars for this. And she brings it and the guy says it's a Picasso and it could be worth three million dollars. Now, if you're the person who you go to a sale and you see that painting there and you know that this could be worth a million dollars and it's for sale for a thousand and you've only got five hundred in your pocket. What are you going to do? You say, hold that painting for me. I'll be right back. And if you don't have the money, you'd go borrow it from your friends and you'd go get. Well, that's what it tells us about the pearl. The merchant goes out and he's looking and when he finds one, it says he goes and sells all. And he gets it. And so culturally speaking, Jesus is speaking the language of the people. They know what he's talking about when he tells these stories. He's not being cryptic. He's using very simple, straightforward language that they would understand. And so then the question becomes, well, what's he talking about? What's he pointing to when he tells these stories? What are the spiritual truths that we need to get at that he's trying to make so clear? And so I want you to go back and just look there. I said at the beginning, if you see that, you see the first man who's out, he's looking for treasure hidden in a field. And then you get the merchant who's looking for a pearl of great value. And the first thing I want you to see in both Jesus's stories, both parables here that he says is that they're searching for something of great value. And I think what Jesus is showing us And what he's teaching us is that every single person, you know, is searching. We're all searching for something of great value and of great meaning in our life. We could go around the room and we could ask each person to share different desires, uh, dreams they've had, maybe accomplishments that you've gotten in your life and different things. And we could go around the room. And, And I know a lot of you, I know we'd hear a lot of great things that have happened. Lots of great things that maybe you've done through your life and accomplishments and all sorts of different things. But the truth is, if we're really honest, all those things, whether it was a a new job or it was a a new promotion or a new house or a new car or children or grandchildren or whatever it is, as great as those things may be, none of those can completely satisfy you. None of those in attaining them. Did you go, ah, I've arrived and now I don't have to do anything else. I can just rest now because I've got this house. Or I can rest now because I've got this promotion. That's just not the truth. Probably the best example I can think of that uh, is, is one that I've, I've shared it before. Maybe forgive me if you've heard this, but it's so I haven't seen a more perfect one in terms of our culture today. And it was an interview with Tom Brady on 60 Minutes, if you ever saw this. 
It was four or five years ago. Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes. If you don't know who Tom Brady is, he's the quarterback of the New England Patriots. And he's considered one of the very best football players in the world. And Tom Brady at the time had just won the Super Bowl. And he was the MVP of the Super Bowl. And he's got millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And he's married to a supermodel. And so the guy literally asks him the question on 60 Minutes. He looks at Tom Brady and he asks him the question. He goes, what is it like to be Tom Brady? Well, just tell us, what's it like? And Tom Brady's kind of like, ah, you know, just a guy. Just, and the guy's like, no, 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 come on. You're Tom Brady. You just won the Super Bowl and you got millions of dollars and you've got this wife and you got all this stuff. He goes, what's it like? And he got real quiet and he looked at the guy and he went, this can't be all there is. That was his answer. And it was almost like a quiet desperation in the way he said it. This can't be all there is. And the interviewer looked at him and he said, what do you mean? You're Tom Brady. He said, what do you mean this can't be all there is? And he goes, I don't know. I wish I did, but I don't. This can't be all there is. And so here's a guy that in our culture we would say has everything. He's got it all. He is the epitome of the American dream. Fame, money, the wife, the superstardom, all of it. And he says, this can't be all that there is. And I think the point that Tom Brady was illustrating without even knowing it, watching the interview, he's not a Christian. He wasn't a believer. I don't know where he stands today. But he was articulating what uh, a man by the name of Blaise Pascal said 400 years before. If you know who Blaise Pascal is, he was a French mathematician. He was a Christian and he was a philosopher. And he coined the phrase God-shaped whole. And what Pascal meant when he said that is every single one of us has a hole in our very being that can only ever be filled by God and nothing else. And we will try our hardest and we will search and we will try to fill it with all different things, whether jobs or children, and all good things, that good gifts that God gives us, but they will never completely fill us up. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. Instead of worshiping and seeing God as supreme, we forsake him and we worship his creation rather than the creator. And Paul says that just leads to futility. The same thing Pascal says, the same thing that Tom Brady was saying in that interview without even knowing it. And so the picture is that all of us at different times fall into that thinking. Whether you are a believer or you are not yet a believer, you're not sure what you think of Jesus. We are all searching. And I say all of us, even when you know the answer. I say the answer is to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Because of our sinful nature which wants to make it all about us, we'll slip into thinking it's about other things. And we'll do this over and over. And we'll have to kind of recalibrate. That's why we meet together weekly. That's why we spend time together to say, no, 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 it's not your performance. It's not these things. It's not this. It's all God. But we end up searching over and over because we fall into those over and over. And if you know that, if you've done that, if you've lived that way, you know what an emotional roller coaster that can be. Because if you're, your meaning is based on your job and then you lose your job, what happens? You're crushed. If the meaning, the ultimate meaning, the ultimate desire and purpose of your life is your children and then they let you down, you're crushed. And so we do it in all different ways and it's an emotional roller coaster when we do that. But the point I'm making here at the beginning is that we're all searching. We're all searching for meaning we're all searching for acceptance. We're all searching for love. And at the very deepest, at the bottom of all those that can only ever be found in what Jesus is talking about here. And that's the second thing. 
Jesus, I said at the beginning, that everyone is searching, but what Jesus is talking about is what everyone's looking for. And so what does he say here? He starts both of these the same way in verse 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. So Jesus is giving us this illustration, this simple story to show you that everyone's searching and what everyone's searching for is what he's talking about. You see that in that both stories, it ends with their great joy over what they found and they're willing to give their life to it. They now see it as the greatest thing. And so Jesus is illustrating that. And so he talks about this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's gospel, he says that over and over. When you read in the other gospels, a lot of times it's, it's said as kingdom of God. Almost always, not always, but almost always those are synonymous. Uses those together, meaning the same thing. And so you go, well, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of different meanings that pop up in the gospel and the way we look at it. But I think we can summarize it in this way when we think about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of God. God reigning and being in control and moving and working in your life and in this world and in all things that he is in the reign. And then when we enter into the kingdom, we're recognizing that he's reigning, that it's all about him instead of about us. And so the picture that you see when it talks about the kingdom of heaven is the idea of coming under the reign of God and seeing your your being your acceptance, your love, all those things as is identified by who God is and and, and who you are in him and not the other way around, not looking for it in other things. And so when Jesus starts to talk about the kingdom of heaven is like he's talking about coming under that reign, coming into relationship with God and seeing him for who he is and that he is reigning. Now, the hard part with this parable, when you take it out of context and you just read these few verses, as I've just done, you can take that and you can read that and you can say, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then the guy goes and buys a field. And then the guy goes and buys the pearl and you can go, okay, well, the kingdom of heaven entering into the kingdom is me working really hard and doing some things. But that's not it. It's not what Jesus says. And so you've got to look at what he talks about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven and what it looks like and how you enter it and how that would work. You go to the Gospel of John in chapter three and Jesus is having a. Uh, a conversation with a man named Nicodemus and Nicodemus is supposed to know these things. He is a spiritual leader. He's kind of and he's asking Jesus all these questions <clears throat> and they center around. How do I enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't enter to the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is totally thrown by this. He's going to mean I go back into the womb. And what is that? He's totally missing. Again, Jesus is using a very simple story to get across a great, big, huge theological truth. And as they talk and as they go back and forth, what Jesus tells them is the way that you're born again is you put your faith in Christ alone and what he does for you. That in your sinfulness, you have rebelled against God. You are at enmity with God and Jesus came to save you. He says, I came into the world. Uh, God sent his only son that whoever believes in me, that's John 3, 16, as he gets down into that. He says, will not perish, but will have everlasting life. And so he clearly says the way that you enter into God's kingdom is saying, I can't do it. It's not about me. It's about God and the reign of God and me deferring to him and what he's done and making it all about him and the way he's provided the way in Christ and nothing else. And so the story here is showing us when we recognize that it's all about God 
It's all what he's done for us and not what we could ever do. It's absolutely freeing and exciting and wonderful and it becomes the priority in our life. And so I want you to see that clearly, that it's not talking about what you do, but what God has done and then what that leads to. And so the picture that is there, what Jesus is saying is that your deepest desire, your deepest need, what everyone is searching for is to be in that relationship with God. That's what he's pointing them to. That your, your desire and the things that you seek to fill it up with will only ever be completed in Jesus. And so he's pointing them to that. What you're searching for is the kingdom. And the kingdom is only found through Jesus. And it's the only thing that will never, ever disappoint you. And so that's the first two. Right? What we're looking for and what the answer is. But then I want you to get to the, the main thrust here, the end of this picture and what it looks like. Right? When you see in both of these stories, it says they find this treasure that he's likening to the kingdom. So they've now put their faith in Christ. They're now understanding who God is. They're entering into a relationship with God through Jesus. And now what does that look like? And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. He does everything he can for now this. Same thing in the second one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so both cases, these are not wealthy men. You see them that they, they go away and they sell all that they have. They didn't have anything. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the resources just to buy that. And so they have to give everything that they are and they have so that they can now get this thing to enter into this. It's the same position we are spiritually. We have nothing to bring to the table in our salvation but our sin. That's all we got. And so when we enter into the kingdom, it is only ever going to be by God's grace and nothing else. And so when that happens, though, when you come to recognize and to see that, then what is it in your life that's still yours? It's just nothing. Nothing I have or that I am or that I will ever be is anything outside of who I am in Jesus and nothing else. It's kind of like that story at the beginning when the guy woke up every day. He said, the only reason I'm living is because that guy stepped up and said, I took it and took my punishment for me. It's the same thing when we start to see that all that we are, all that we are now, all that we will be, that will come to fruition in Christ is because of Jesus. And so when you start to think about that picture, when he says they sell everything they have for this. They make their whole life about this. When you know who God is and you know what he's done for you in Jesus Christ, that makes absolutely perfect sense. In fact, it doesn't make any sense to do anything else. The picture that is there is that all that you are, he is now the priority and you now recognize it. You now see that it's all about him and nothing else. And so the picture uh, that you see here is the same thing uh, that Dennis read for us just a minute ago from Luke chapter 14. If you're not familiar with that passage, Dennis stood up and he read, Jesus says you need to hate your brother and your mother and your sister. And he goes through this whole list. If you're going to be my disciple and you go, what in the world is that? 
you don't know that passage and you were listening and you're sitting here today, you probably went, what is he talking about? Well, what Jesus is saying is he's using, again, the, the language of the people. They knew exactly what he meant. It was a way to, to illustrate his point. He was saying every relationship in your life should look like hate in comparison to how much you love me. I should so be the absolute priority in your life and in every way. That's what he's saying in Luke 14. It's the same thing he's illustrating in this story. When you understand what God has done for you and who you now are in him, he's the priority. You gladly sell it all for him. And so as we think about that and as we start to to think just about that picture and what it looks like, I want us just to think and ask this question. If you're putting your faith in Jesus and you would count yourself as a Christian today, does that make sense to you? Do you go, yes, absolutely. Jesus is the center of my life. He is the priority above all else. And I just want you to think about that if that's the picture that you have. If somebody would look at your life and you would, you would think that that's the case. You say, yes, absolutely. I want to be counted as just like the, the uh, man in the parable here. I sell everything, give everything, all my, who I am for Jesus. And I want you to think about if that's true or not and what that looks like. And there's some questions I just want you to think through. I was thinking through these myself this week. I'm not pointing this at anybody. It's not to condemn you. It's just for us to think through that together. And I was asking and thinking about these questions. Do people that I know or do people that you know, that you're friends with, that you move with, that you work with, that you're around, do they know that you're a Christian? I'm not, I'm not talking about that you've shared the entirety of the gospel with them. I'm not talking about that you've pulled out your Bible and started reading it to them. I'm just simply asking, do they know that you would say Jesus is the most important thing in your life? It's a good diagnostic question of saying, is he really the priority in my life or not? Because if people don't even know that he's the most important thing in your life, how is that? The things that we get excited about, we usually are quick to share with other people, are we not? Right? Like, I love to show pictures of, like, my kids. Look at how cute they are, right? I love my kids, but they don't compare to Jesus. Not even close. But I'm quick to share that with other people. What about how you spend your time? If we were to do an audit on the way you spend your time each week, and and not just what you're physically doing, but where your thoughts go. When when you're free to kind of do whatever you want, where do your thoughts go? What are the things you think about? Is Jesus, is your relationship with God right there at the forefront? Or is it like, oh, I've got to go to church. Oh, I should think about Jesus. Those, those things start to reveal our hearts. Or you think about the, the teachings of Jesus saying, where your treasure is, your heart is also. I heard a, uh, one of my pastors years ago said, show me a man's bank account and I'll show you where his, how, his heart is. And so if you were to look at how you spend your resources and what God has given you, would it reflect that Jesus is the most important thing in your life? And so you start to think about what he's saying here and what that looks like. And the sad truth is a lot of times we claim that Jesus is the priority, but we look just like the rest of the world that doesn't know him. And so Jesus is saying it should be the absolute priority. Now, as, as we end this, 
I don't want you to leave feeling beat up with, oh man, if I looked at those things, I don't know, and I'm not sure, and maybe you think that way, because I want you to really be encouraged with what Jesus says here. I don't bring these things up to beat you up, or to make you feel like, oh, I'm not a good Christian. That's not the point. The point here that I want us to see is I actually believe what Jesus says here. And in verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Jesus says that when you see him as central to your life, when he becomes the priority, there is a joy that is there that far exceeds anything else. And so when I ask those questions, I'm asking them of myself because when I put other things in his rightful place, I'm missing his best. God wants you to make him the center because that's where your greatest joy will be. He wants your best. It's not to beat you up or to make you feel bad or to make you feel guilty or any of those things. It's because God wants you to see how clearly he is the one. He is the center. You'll never, ever regret giving your life away for Jesus. That's hard to hear because sometimes that may actually mean you get killed for it. It's people who give their life away and go to different parts of the world and they get killed. And then they stand before Jesus. They're not regretting it, I guarantee you. They don't stand before him and go, man, why did I do that? They see him and they go... Yes, yes, I would go do that over and over again, a hundred times over. And so as we end this morning, as we think about just this, this simple picture that's here, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God and what's that looks like, there's this strange paradox in the kingdom of God. Is that the more that you become self-forgetful, the more you become about God, the more you become about other people, the greater your joy is. That's the picture that's in Scripture all the way through. The more you make it about Him, the more you get in joy. Because that's the way you were made. And so as we end this morning, I just want to challenge you to this. I want you to prayerfully consider this week, are there areas in your life where Jesus isn't center? Are there parts of your life where Jesus is kind of over here on the peripheral? I don't really have time for him here or here or whatever that I, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I'm asking you to ask God to show you where those areas are. And the reason I'm asking you is because I want your fullest joy. I want you to be overflowing with what God wants for you in Christ. And he wants God to be the center in all of it. And it makes everything else better. And so it's not to beat you up, but it's because we want your best. We want what Jesus says here. So let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for the simplicity of your word and the way that you speak to us. We thank you for the beauty of who you are as our Savior, as our Creator, as our Redeemer, that you are the center of all that there is. I pray that you would help us to recognize that, to see that more clearly. I pray that uh, the areas of my life where I'm not honoring you as the absolute priority, that you would reveal those things, that you would show them, that you would lead not only me, but us as a body here together into a more fullness of just making you the absolute central thing in our life. 
We thank you that you loved us enough to come to us, to lay down your life for us. We, we just thank you for all that you've done for us, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.